0: from whqr public media in wilmington north carolina this is coastline i'm rachel lewis hilburn if you live in the cape fear region you probably know the lower cape fear river is polluted Impaired, is the term environmental officials like to use, you might also know that part of the pollution problem is courtesy of Chemours, formerly DuPont, releasing a multi-decadal load of unregulated toxic chemical compounds into the river including the carcinogenic Gen X. Many of these chemicals cannot be removed through traditional water treatment methods. Because the Cape Fear River is an important source of drinking water for thousands of people in southeastern North Carolina, Brunswick County has begun work on a reverse osmosis water treatment plant. Cape Fear Public Utility Authority is constructing granular activated carbon filters to remove more of these emerging contaminants, and CFPUA filed a lawsuit against Chemours and DuPont in 2017. The expected trial date? Not until the summer of 2023. But Chemours-DuPont is not the only polluter, and contaminated drinking water is not the only serious impact. People have fished the lower Cape Fear River for decades. And according to a new study out of Duke University, that fishing is often not just for sport. Duke researchers found that people who catch fish from the Cape Fear River often consume the fish and share it with others. Scientists have also discovered that some of these fish are more contaminated than previously thought, and fish consumption advisories have been dangerously outdated. The potential impacts for humans from overconsumption of these fish include neurological damage and cancer. Today, we'll learn about the Duke University study, what it means for you, and how you can make healthier fish choices and prepare your fish to minimize the contaminant load. Joining me now, Dr. Moshkan Rajaei. She is an assistant professor of public health at Oakland University in Michigan. Professor Rajaei, welcome to Coastline. Thank you, it's great to be here. It's great to have you with us. Kiara Klein is program coordinator for community engagement with Duke University Superfund Research Center. Kiara Klein, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much, Rachel. Really looking forward to it.
0: Yes. Coming up later in the program, we will hear from Chef Dean Neff of Seabird Restaurant about how to prepare and cook fish to ensure you're not concentrating contamination. Professor Raja E., tell us first, what are the most popular species of fish that people catch and consume from the Cape Fear River?
2: Well, catfish are kind of the one that everybody knows uh, and eat frequently, Uh, A lot of research uh, hasn't focused on catfish, um, but we know, everybody knows anecdotally that people are catching catfish and they're eating it. So catfish are the big ones, um, but people also eat uh, bass, bluegill, uh, and uh, bowfin. Uh, So those are some of the major ones I would say that people are eating.
0: Right. And, And what did we learn in this study about what we had been telling people about these fish versus what we actually know
2: now? Well, we had uh, pretty limited data on what kind of contaminants were in fish, and so what we were telling people before about what fish they should eat and how much they should eat um, was based off of old data and kind of inadequate data. Uh, so the, the recommendations really did change um, as we gathered more data and learned more about how much and how kind of bad is the magnitude of the contaminants in the fish. Uh, So a lot of that changed with our data. Um, We found that uh, contaminants were higher, particularly in actually all of the fish that we tested had higher levels of contaminants than we expected. And that had been previously seen uh, in other studies and other work by the DEQ.
0: And so we're going to get into what those contaminants are in just a minute. But Kiara Klein, since we learned this, why don't we just tell people... Not to eat the fish.
1: Yeah, so we want to be really cognizant of the fact that people are fishing out of the river out of need. We refer to that as subsistence fishing, um, fishing for food, um, meaning that they are supplementing their diets or putting food on the table um, using the fish that they're catching. Um, that's an important source of protein for for people along the river. Oftentimes, it's also a cultural practice. Um, whether they are from the area or from elsewhere. That's the practice of fishing and catching fish for their families um, is something that is part of their lifestyle. And we don't want to be telling people not to to catch and eat fish out of the river because sometimes that's just not an option.
0: And so you've said that there's a there's a cultural and maybe traditional element to this as well as a need for a, a source of free protein, essentially. How did you guys figure out who was actually eating the fish versus who was just catching it for sport?
1: That was done primarily through two different surveys um, that Duke University, in conjunction with some other community partners, were able to um, put out into the world. And the first was back in 2016, 2017. And that was a household survey. So in which we, um, mostly in the Castle Hain area, went door to door and asked folks about their fishing practices. Um, Obviously, in that case, we weren't directly targeting those who were fishing actively at the moment. So a couple years later, we went back in and did a bankside survey um, where researchers were actually approaching folks who were fishing along the river and asking them questions about their fishing habits. And that's how we really um, were able to understand who was fishing, why they were fishing, um and in a lot of cases, that they were sharing it with people and who they were sharing it with.
0: and so who who are these people? How would you describe the community of subsistence fisher people?
1: Yeah, it's hard. It's a little multifaceted. I think there are a lot of subpopulations of people who do fish from the river and eat what they're catching specifically. Um, for various reasons. Um, But based on the household survey, which was a little bit more demographic focused, um, we were able to glean that these are, um, tend to be lower income or food insecure folks uh, from kind of a variety of cultural or ethnic backgrounds. Um, The Wilmington area does have a substantial Latinx population. Um, And so uh, we, without without having a tremendous amount of data, We were able to determine that um, there are, yeah, there are quite a few uh, types of folks that would be fishing from the river. But um, a lot of a lot of the food insecure or low income um, people are fishing and eating what they catch.
0: So your study then bore out the fact that there is an overlap between communities of color and food insecurity and people fishing for sustenance. Okay, And there. Yeah. Professor Raja Yi, what are the toxic chemicals that you found in the fish
2: tissue? So we specifically were testing for uh, mostly metals. So we tested uh, mercury, arsenic, and chromium. And uh, then we also looked at PCBs and dioxins or polychlorinated biphenyls. That's PCBs, which are organic chemicals. So those are the ones that we focused on. PCBs and accents are a lot more expensive. So, we only tested for those in a small subset of fish, um, about five different uh, fish that we collected. Whereas for the metals um, and metalloid, which is arsenic, uh, we tested that in 131 fish. Uh, and so, some of those you kind of combine into composites. Uh, so, we end up having a pretty good sample from five different sites throughout the lower Cape Fear River, um, but specifically for mercury, arsenic, and chromium.
0: How much did those sites vary in terms of results?
2: Yeah, we ended up not testing the exact same fish species at every site, partially because, you know, some fish are more brackish water fish. So you're going to find them um, closer to the coast than more inland. Uh, So we did have some variations in which fish we tested. Uh, But when we looked at know the species that were tested at multiple sites they were actually pretty similar there wasn't a lot of variation we did see some sites uh like at burnt mill creek where the levels were a little bit higher for certain metals um, than others but overall not a whole lot of variation um, between the different contaminants in the different sites and we're going to get more into this of course
0: throughout the discussion but overall when people consume more of this fish than they should,
2: what are they doing to their health potentially? Yeah, if you're consuming fish at a higher amount than is recommended, it just means you're being exposed to these metals, these contaminants at a greater level. And I should mention, right, even though we just tested for mercury, arsenic and chromium, there are other potential contaminants that we didn't test for. We did the the big ones that we knew were likely to be there and we knew posed the most health risk. Uh, so there are potential other contaminants. And the hard part is with some of these contaminants is that you're not gonna, you're not gonna see any immediate effects likely uh, based on the amount of the metals you're getting in your body from the fish. Uh, the effects can be really small and they're gonna be pretty delayed uh, and you might not even notice them at all. Uh, so it can be quite difficult to measure the impacts, particularly for one person. So you might not see anything, or at least not anything you would ever attribute to the arsenic or the chromium that you're getting from, you know, the catfish you're eating occasionally. Uh, So most people probably aren't going to notice it, but there are health risks that people, if you eat a lot of the fish that have high levels of these contaminants, you're at a greater risk for certain things. You can have GI irritation, some things like arsenic uh, and chromium are both carcinogenic, which means that they increase your risk of cancer. So any amount of it uh, can can increase that risk so you want less of it Uh, you have other both of those as well as mercury that can influence reproductive uh, and cognitive and neurological impacts and those are the things that are subtle and harder to observe
0: you're listening to coastline we're learning about a new study out of duke university that examined fish tissue from the cape fear river and we're exploring what that means for you Coming up later in the program, Chef Dean Neff of Seabird joins us to explain the best ways to cook fish to minimize the contaminant load. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline, back in a moment. You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. We're learning about a recent study that shows higher levels of contaminants in fish tissue from the Lower Cape Fear River than we previously thought. Dr. Moshgan Rajaei is an assistant professor of public health at Oakland University in Michigan. Kiara Klein is program coordinator for community engagement with Duke University Superfund Research Center. Professor Rajaei, which parts of the river are we talking about? What were the sites that were tested?
2: We tested fish from five different sites. So one was at uh, Burnt Mill Creek uh, near Archie Blue Park in Wilmington, uh, and then Davis Creek near Navassa, uh, the Brunswick River near Belleville, and then uh, Cape Fear River near Regalwood um, near kind of the International Paper Facility, and uh, the Northeast Cape Fear uh, near Hayne. And as you've pointed
0: out, Kiara Klein, so many of the people who take fish from the lower Cape Fear River are, are doing this out of need because there's a certain amount of food insecurity. How have these people in the past accessed the outdated fish consumption advisories, the ones that weren't conservative enough or protective enough? Where did they get the information and do they pay attention to it?
1: Yeah, so I would say uh, they have not access them easily, and that is no fault of theirs. Um, I think that the existing fish consumption advisories are um, a little bit difficult to find if you're not explicitly looking for them. They do exist online, um, but they exist in kind of a really comprehensive format such that you kind of have to know what you're looking for um, in order to actually get at the advisories that apply to you um technically there are supposed to be posted signs at popular fishing spots boat ramps and things like that those are not always put up uh, and they are certainly not always put up in an accessible way where they're easily visible um and even then a lot of the language can be um a little bit esoteric and sort of over folks heads even if you have a phd they can be a little bit difficult to parse out. So I think the short answer is that they are the existing fish consumption advisories, although they are um, useful, they are not easy to access. Um, and they certainly are not posted in enough easily accessible places um, for folks to really make use of them.
0: Now, when did you actually have people going out testing the fish? What what year or years did this happen?
2: This was done in uh, the fall of 2020 um, and early, kind of uh, mid-2021. And what do we know about the last
0: time, until Duke University launched this particular study, when was the last time that fish tissue had been tested for toxins like this?
2: The last time that there was any assessments of Contaminants in fish was in 2013, done by the DEQ, uh, and so is only at one site um, near Belleville. And that was related to Carmagee uh, Superfund site research. Right. And you said
0: earlier that there isn't a whole lot of variation among sites in terms of the levels of heavy metals that you found in the fish tissue.
2: Yeah, there is some variation. It's hard because we, there were only a couple fish that we sampled at all of the sites, uh, but generally we found pretty consistent results that uh, if a recommendation is that you should only have one of Bofin, let's say per one meal of Bofin per week, that's consistent across all sites. Um, it's not like you can have one at, meal at one site and two at another site. It was consistent across all of the sites. And so, d- I don't know if you can
0: help us understand this or not, because this might be a regulatory question, Professor Rajat Yu, but if if the the data on which fish consumption advisories were so outdated, what are we learning about how to improve the accuracy and the effectiveness and, and reaching more people with these fish consumption advisories? Because they're not they're not rules, right? I mean, there's no This isn't like breaking a law if you eat more servings of fish per week. It's just it's the damage that it does to your body. So how can we do a better job and inform more people with more
2: accurate data? Yeah, I mean, you're hitting it right on the head in the sense that you can eat as much fish as you want. uh, And really, it's just a risk to yourself. And if you're a woman and you're pregnant, also risk to your child. But legally, you can do whatever you'd like. Uh, there are a couple of things that I think are, are issues with our fish consumption advisories. One is they were outdated, like you said, we don't have, we're not testing consistently and we don't have updated data, of like what's happened in the last nine years? Uh, so that's one major issue. But the other thing is, is a lot of the advisories are based off of, you know, we measured mercury in one fish or in one type of fish at, at a couple sites. And so a lot of the advisories were for mercury. Uh, and we knew that mercury was likely to be in these fish, but we're not looking at other contaminants. And so, one of the major concerns I have as somebody in public health around a lot of our consumption advisories for fish is that they're based off of only one chemical or one contaminant. And so, you base, a, you say you should eat one meal of fish, whatever fish it is, per week based on the amount of mercury in fish. But there's also arsenic and there's also chromium in the fish. And so what, what needs to happen with our fish consumption advisories is we need to look at them holistically um, and say, OK, well, fish is a whole thing and it has mercury and arsenic and chromium as well as probably PCBs and other things in it. Uh, but we don't actually have a system in place, methods in place to be able to do that. There's not great scientific data on that those methods. And so it means that when we set these advisories, we are setting them for only one sole contaminant at a time. And so we don't have a good idea of what's the cumulative risk based off of these three metals. So we measured arsenic, chromium and mercury uh, in fish. We don't have a good idea of what those cumulative risks are. And so you have to try to figure out how do we be protective, but not overprotective. So that way we're saying don't eat any fish when we know that people will and there are health benefits from eating fish. Right,
0: so Help us understand also how some of these contaminants work within the fish. The You've explained to me before that um, there's a biomagnification element. What is What does it mean when a contaminant biomagnifies? And what does that mean for me,
2: the human? Right. So a lot of metals and, and some other organic chemicals have, uh, for, unfortunately, have uh, really unique properties in that they can do two different things, some of them. Bioaccumulate and biomagnify. So bioaccumulation is just that a, a chemical can basically accumulate in your body. As a person, it can accumulate in your body, but it also accumulates in one fish's body. So it's the fish is taking up more than it's getting rid of from its body, and it can store in its fat or muscles, whatever, depends on the contaminant. That's bioaccumulation. Biomagnification is when It goes, as you move up the food chain, so those small fish all the way up to the big fish, uh, the concentration of that contaminant, that chemical increases as you move up the food chain. Mercury, for example, both biomagnifies and bioaccumulates and PCBs. They have this ability, right, to accumulate in one fish's body as well as in kind of moving up the food chain. Arsenic and chromium don't biomagnify for the most part. They mostly just bioaccumulate, but that matters because it influences what are the fish that we would recommend that people should eat. Uh, And so if we know that fish at the top of the food chain and those that are really large, either gonna have more of those toxicants bioaccumulated in their bodies or biomagnified up in their bodies, if they're high in the food chain, then we wanna recommend people eating smaller fish or fish that are lower on the food chain. Even though, you know, the tendency is like, oh, I caught this huge fish. Uh, In this case, we're saying maybe the huge fish isn't the one you should eat because it's actually going to have a higher toxicant load than the smaller fish. So it kind of goes against what we might lean towards naturally, uh, but those basic principles are really important for understanding risks. Especially in,
0: in a family that struggles with food insecurity, I can see how the idea of turning away from that would be something of an abstraction, and it might be difficult to let that go when you're thinking about putting food on the table tonight. Kiara Klein, I know you've worked so hard on this campaign to get this information out to people. Are you hearing from people yet or getting a sense of, of how this is landing and, and what this actually means to people in, a, in the practical world?
1: Yeah, so our outreach has primarily been focused around our Stop, Check, Enjoy social marketing campaign and social marketing, meaning this is just kind of marketing for good. We're trying to get the message out into the world. Um, The Stop, Check, Enjoy campaign uh, consists of printed materials, so brochures, uh, wallet cards, magnets, all sorts of physical items that people um, can reference uh, we've also created some online video content for people to be able to watch um, and we've had a few various uh, events based around stop check enjoy so um, the messaging itself um is as dr rajai was saying it's it's based around kind of helping folks to do a risk assessment themselves and say okay this is my these are my demographic characteristics this is my level of need um these are the people that i may or may not be sharing the fish with how do i make decisions based around that now that being said i think that there are you know there's a mixed reaction i think a lot of folks are very interested in the information but that there is a varying degree of relevancy, and that there are people that, because of their level of need, um, are mostly going to disregard the messaging because their priorities are: I need to feed my family. And we understand that, and that is that's something that we've understood from the get go that there are there are some shifts that that we can't make, and that's okay. Um, but we have heard uh, positively from a lot of people who say. I just really didn't have this information. And I'm really glad now that I at least have the information so that I can make decisions better.
0: You're listening to Coastline. With us today, Kiara Klein, Program Coordinator for Community Engagement at Duke University Superfund Research Center, and Professor Moshkan Rajai, Assistant Professor of Public Health at Oakland University. Kiara Klein, why did you guys, why did Duke University launch this study in the first place?
1: We uh, we really saw that we could be useful, um, I think is the answer. Um, back in 2016, which is um, when the EPA environmental justice grant was awarded to community members in the Wilmington area, um, that grant uh, was something that Duke, kind of helped facilitate, helped make happen, but it really came out of community need. Um, There was a Titan cement plant that was going up, um, and so there was community, grassroots community uh, outreach around that, trying to organize against the cement plant going in, Um, and it was at that time that as uh, community activists were out and about, um, they noticed that people were fishing From the river um, and not just catch and release and so there was concern okay well if theoretically this titan cement plant is going up and we know that there are other um, very present sources of pollution wouldn't it you know logically follow that there's pollutants in these fish that people are eating so there was concern um and but there wasn't kind of the scientific data uh to back it up and so we were able to step in and and provide more of that Academic research data kind of bend to um, community observation and community need.
0: So, going back to impacts on on humans who overconsume this fish, Professor Raja E, have you seen yet? So we know that some of these heavy metals are carcinogenic and they can have neurological effects, um, create neurological damage and. All different types of, of cancer. Are we seeing any evidence of that?
2: Well, we haven't done any research yet on the health impacts um, of, you know, what's it like if we actually look at people who are eating a lot of this fish that's caught in the lower Cape Fear uh, and you know, we assume would then be exposed to even to more of these toxins. We don't have good data on on understanding what those exposure risks are and then what those health impacts are. So we don't have data on that, unfortunately. Um, It is something that I think would be really interesting to be able to figure out what are the impacts of this. It requires a a larger study um, to be able to see these impacts because they can be pretty small, Uh, not insignificant. I'll throw that out there, right? I think sometimes we think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Those small things actually do matter. Uh, and so it is likely that people are being exposed uh, and there are ways that you can measure metals uh, in people's hair, for example, to be able to see how much they are getting from their diet from fish and other sources. Right.
0: So just to circle back, and I realize we're, we're going to post on the website along with this episode, all of the resources and the ways people can find, stop, check and enjoy and, and go through it themselves. But is there kind of an overarching guideline that we could offer to people? In ter- like, for instance, are there fish from the river that people should absolutely just not be eating at all, Professor Raja E.?
2: Uh well bofin is one that has at least in the new advisories um, we found were pretty high uh, in a lot of different contaminants. Uh, and so in that case, the recommendation for for most people is is to not really eat bofin um, or either not eat it or eat it uh, kind of seldomly. Um, so we're not saying don't eat it entirely um, really because that's not practical, and I know some people are going to, uh, but try to eat it on a limited basis. Uh, what are so the less than once a week? Right. So, what what are the safest
0: fish to eat? And we'll get into size and that sort of thing later. But just in terms mm-hmm. of species, if people know what they're catching,
2: so fish that are lower on the food chain are going to be better. Uh, the hard part is is we only analyzed uh, you know a handful of different fish species, and and all of them had levels of contaminants that show that you know you should limit consumption. So even something that we had previously thought was totally fine, like uh, bluegill, um, we found that levels were higher, particularly of chromium. That was actually the leading contaminant of concern for limiting the fish consumption, consumption advisories. And uh, so one of the fish that we thought previously was like, eat eat a lot of wait It's totally fine. Bluegill is safe. Um, but that wasn't the case. And so uh, there is kind of a lot of uncertainty of like which fish are safe. Uh, but I would say if you're going to be eating fish, bluegill and other fish that are low, so other sunfish, tend to be uh, lower compared to some of these other fish that are higher in the food chain, like catfish and bowfin. Uh, red drum as well has higher levels of uh, metals. So Kiara Klein,
0: how much does seasonality actually play into levels of contamination, and what what how should people be thinking about that?
1: Yeah, that's another thing we haven't really been able to uh, get a whole lot of data on. We haven't done the research on seasonality, um, but we do work with... Organizations like Wildlife Resources Commission and the North Carolina Department of Marine Fisheries, and their charge is a little bit more on sort of the biology, ecology end of things. Um, and so there, there, is, there are recommendations and there is a way that seasonality does play into things, um, specifically more so with catch limits, but I think Professor Ajayi can speak to that a bit more.
2: Yeah. I mean, the main thing that you want when you catch fish is you want them to actually be the biggest they're going to get. Uh, so sometimes it depends on the fish species, but it's for some it's in the fall. So you try and catch them in the fall when they're bigger, um, because that's going to be the greatest risk. So that's usually the seasonality piece that's most important. That's great. And
0: once again, the name of the marketing campaign is Stop Check and enjoy, Kiara Klein, where can people go to find that online?
1: So that is on our Duke University Superfund Center webpage um, under the kind of outreach section. Uh, And under that section, there's all, all of our materials that are downloadable, also can be viewed online. So that's the place to go.
0: That's great. And of course, again, we will post all of those resources on our website along with this episode. You're listening to Coastline. Kiara Klein of the Duke University Superfund Research Center and Dr. Moshgan Rajai of Oakland University, thank you both so much for helping us understand this today.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you.
0: When we come back from this short break, Dean Neff of Seabird is here to explain more about how to choose the fish you eat, how to prepare it to actually minimize the contaminants you're eating. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. We just learned about a new study out of Duke University that shows the fish consumption advisories for the Lower Cape Fear River have been dangerously out of date. The study found people are eating fish that are contaminated with high levels of mercury, chromium, and arsenic. And we need to do a better job of educating people about the problem and how they can better protect themselves consuming these fish. Joining me now is Dean Neff, chef and owner of Seabird Restaurant in downtown Wilmington. Chef Dean Neff, welcome to Coastline. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us. So you've long been an advocate of healthy food through responsible and sustainable sourcing. And when you learned it, well, tell me how you felt when you first learned about this Duke University fish study and how toxic some of this fish actually is that people are eating. How do, what did you think and feel?
3: So, you know, I feel like it, it immediately kind of connected me to other moments in my career when, when you learn, you know, the negative impacts of farming, whether it's, you know, shrimp farming and, you know, in ways that are not using filtered water or, um, you know, things that are, are harming the, the environment in certain ways – I feel like a lot of times there there can be in in a lot of those situations there's an opportunity to actually not only kind of change the way things are done but to also kind of be more intentional about the ingredients that you know as a chef at least that that you use. And um, for me though, this is it's a little bit different with this one with this campaign, and I feel like you know. Being a, a community restaurant and working with so many people in the community to source ingredients and to, you know, and food being the main component of what we do, I feel like this is something that we really need to continue to see through because it's such a valuable resource for the community. And, um, you know, seafood is a really complicated issue. And, you know, whether it's it's very local, it's seasonal, um, you know pollution and, and other things play into it in different areas. It's very location-specific. And um, it also, as we learned in the first segment, it takes time to really gather all the data um, in order to understand it all. And so, you know, there, there are resources like the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which we use in trying to source fish at the restaurant. And you know using that as a resource is super helpful for us because it allows us to kind of at a quick glance to see if the fish that we're sourcing is is okay to source and to serve people on a local level obviously that can be a lot more challenging to kind of figure out and so you know to me this the stop check and joy campaign is so important because i really want it to continue on and and to continue to learn uh, more information about what's going on and to get the information out to everyone in the community. Um, so
0: You know, it's so interesting to me because you, I mean, you're coming at this as a chef and a restaurant owner and thinking about what you put on the plates in your restaurant. And of course, that matters to you and it always has. But you're also very concerned just as a member of this community about the people who maybe can't afford to, come to your restaurant, but who are going to the banks of the lower Cape Fear River and and consuming these fish. And when I asked you in our phone conversation about why you were so passionate about this, because some people are going to listen to this and think, that really sucks that the lower Cape Fear River is so polluted. And I hope they get that drinking water situation figured out quickly. In the meantime, I've installed whole house reverse osmosis. So I'm covered but they're going to think, I'm glad I don't eat fish from the Cape Fear River, just won't even do that, won't even take the risk. But for you, you, you see it a little differently. I mean, you think that person who can afford the whole house reverse osmosis system and who isn't eating the fish from the Cape Fear River, this is still their problem. Why?
3: Uh, absolutely, it's it's a it's a bigger problem, and it's easy again because it's a complicated sub you know, complicated subject matter. It's really hard to to know, you know, or to think about it in in the way that kind of well, you know. I we've been doing this for about two years, and I, I think that you know this is an environmental you know. It, one, it's it's people in our community, and you know that's the most important reason that we should be concerned. Um, it's also you know, in our environment. And, and it's kind of shining a light on what's going on and hopefully bringing awareness so that the, you know, entire community can can get behind this and make change. I mean, it's important for our future. Um, this is our home. And so it's, you know, it's the people in our community. It's the the water coming out of our faucets. And um, if we just continue to turn away and, and not, you know deal with it and learn more about it and follow through with it. I'm I'm just concerned that you know, it's going to it'll get worse.
0: Yeah. So so you said you've been involved with this whole project Stop Check and Enjoy for a couple of years now. And you've learned a lot yourself just about how to choose fish, how to prepare fish. So tell us first of all what kind of fish you would choose if it was coming from the lower
3: Cape Fear River? It's a good question. And, you know, if, if, you know, sunfish is definitely one of those. I think that in wrapping your head around the issue on a community level, um, you know, basically being close to these contamination sources is, is definitely a problem. This is also kind of primarily a freshwater problem um, with seafood. And so if you're able to fish in salt water, um, if you're able, you know, if there, if there's a way to do that, I feel like that also minimizes the risk. Um, so when we're choosing fish, when, when going to far or, you know, seafood markets like Sea View Crab Company, looking to see what they have, um, I typically, you know, will one look to see if it's freshwater or brackish water fish, and then also looking you know, to see where it's from, obviously. And then there's this issue of the bioaccumulation and biomagnification, and that's kind of for the larger fish as well. And so, um, there's a lot of things to consider, but I think if we think about it in terms of those three things, it can be helpful as far as, you know, which fish to choose from the Cape Fear River. Again, that is the answer to that is, is complicated because there, there is this sort of portion size per week recommendation. And I also feel like we're still very early on in the, in the research, and so I feel like that's kind of best, you know, to, to look at the Stop, Check, and joy campaign to, to see which fish, you know, they're recommending and how many servings per week. Um, but, yes, yeah, sunfish and, and, again, those fish that are um, not, you know, growing to be very large and are not as high up on the food chain, I think are the best options for, for sourcing fish there.
0: Uh, So I just want to make sure I understand that. When we're talking about size, we're talking about just like physically smaller fish that are probably younger fish. That's one element of it, right? And then we're also talking about where they are on the food chain.
3: Correct. We want
0: the lower, not the predator fish, right?
3: Correct. And also, I think a lot of times those predator fish are typically are older. And so older species of fish, I mean, um, you know, carp and and, um, some of the fish that get really old tend to accumulate over time more of those things. If they're spending more time in that environment, there's more potential for that to get into their system and stay. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it, it's it's very, very complex. Um, but again, when I actually called Kiara and it kind of dawned on me, I'm like, so this really is kind of a fresh and brackish water issue. And so I think that's kind of, the, you know, when you need to be on high alert and really paying attention to the the weekly requirements of portion sizes is when you're you're consuming fish from that fresh and brackish water specifically.
0: And so a lot of people who do Take fish out of the Cape Fear River and cook and eat them. A lot of those people are frying them because a lot of these fish are. I mean, is it fair to say, Dean? They're kind of fishy. I'm not offending anybody with that, right? I don't, they're a little fishier than.
3: I don't know. I don't. I don't think. Um, I think fish when it's fresh isn't doesn't tend to be fishy. Okay. But but yeah, that's a great point. The one of the things that we learned in this this research and over the past couple of years is that um, a lot of these fish actually the these, a lot of these metals will actually concentrate specifically in the fat of the fish. And so um, also that, you know, we learned that, you know, frying fish and especially, you know, when you fry fish, we reuse fryer oil and uh, those contaminants can actually concentrate in the fry oil when you reuse it. And so, you know, one of the things that where I felt like I could help is maybe trying to bring healthier, flavorful options for Trying to you know prepare fish in a way that's going to make it safer and hopefully um, not you won't run into situations where you're having the, these chemicals concentrate in fat that's being reused primarily.
0: Okay, so the chemicals concentrate in the fat that's being reused. So we need to dump the we shouldn't be re, reusing fry or oil even though that can get expensive. But we probably also shouldn't be frying at all, the fish because that concentrates the the chemicals. Um, what is the best way to cook fish so that we are not concentrating them?
3: So certain types of fish, um, you know, do really well actually steamed. Um, You know, steaming, kind of cooking like a stew or a low country boil and uh, putting fish into a pot like right before it finishes and covering it and simmering it um, at the, you know, we're going to be doing a a smoked mullet tomato stew. Um, And so that dish, you know, Taking mullet is, is a great option, I think, because it is one of those smaller fish. And um, something that's kind of interesting that I've I've always – it's drawn me to cooking and especially relevant to seafood is that, you know, as we w- – when I was younger, you know, there were certain fish that, you know, were, were considered to be like the, the higher-end fish that were served in, in restaurants. And then throughout my career, I've noticed that these other fish that – you know, weren't typically as, ex- as expensive or sought after are now becoming those fish that are because of this, these conversations that continue around, you know, fish and, and people learning how to prepare fish. Mullet is, uh, growing up, I always heard it was bony and all fish are bony. So it's, it's a matter of learning how to, you know, to, to fillet it and take as many of the bones out as possible. Um, mullet also does really well uh, when you smoke it. And so that can, you know, impart a lot of great flavor. Um, and so it's kind of learning some tricks, I think, that can really help you, you know, take these these fish that maybe aren't, you know, center plate items in your, in your mind and, and making them something that's, you know, a much more uh, elevated preparation that's delicious and, you know, inexpensive and local.
0: So again, if the contaminants tend to concentrate in the fat, we also want to clean and butcher the fish in a way that removes as much of that as we can. What's the? Can you talk a little bit about yeah, how to do that?
3: Absolutely. Um, obviously, there are different different types of fish carry different amounts of, of fat, just uh, intermuscular fat. But for the you know kind of in a general way of, of talking about it, most of the fat ends up in the belly of the fish, and so um, it can also be a really flavorful cut. But you know, especially when dealing with fish that are possibly, you know, at risk for being contaminated, it's a really good idea to to cut off the belly fat and discard it. Um, that's that's kind of primarily where most of the the fat builds up in fish. And when you're filleting it, it's really easy to kind of just snip it off and, and get rid of it.
0: Okay, in the belly fat. Now, we've talked a lot today about where some of these fish in the lower Cape Fear River were tested, We know where they were caught and tested, and there were five sites. And we've also talked about how little we really understand. Like, this is just the beginning of this new research, and hopefully it continues. As a restaurant owner, do you ever get concerned about fish migration and are fish that maybe were caught out in the ocean, fish that could have migrated from the lower Cape Fear River? How do you think about that?
3: I mean, you know, we we definitely um, kind of work with, you know, what we know. I think, you know, using a lot of fish that are from, you know, further out. We do use speckled trout sometimes, and speckled trout is is kind of more, um, it's near the ocean. I don't, I think there are, I don't know. We, we try to steer clear of the fish that that basically make their way into brackish water. Um, striped bass tend to do that. So, you know, but that's kind of the the point of this campaign is that we really want to kind of, hopefully, we can keep this going and we keep momentum behind this study, uh, and and continue to update everything as we go. Because I mean, you know, it's it's all about awareness and um, in a restaurant being in a restaurant. It's like you know there are you have to hope that you you change every day based on the things that you know and learn. Right now, we don't know of any um, any issues of of these other species migrating, but we do know, you know we have this list that's pretty comprehensive of fish that we should avoid. and we we you know try to do that as best we can.
0: So you mentioned steaming smoking. you mentioned uh, tomato mullet stew that you're going to be trying out. We have about a minute left. What for those of us who aren't chefs, award-winning chefs, uh, give us something simple. Like, what's what's the the best way to to cook a mullet?
3: I think that you know it it depends on the fish, and I think you know if if we're using um, you know mullet or or you know you can we see lots of cobia at the at the fish markets as well. Um, Those are kind of more resilient fish and they do well just steamed you know like cooking sort of a low country boil uh, making what kind of is called a sofrito it's an aromatic vegetable um, blend and you kind of cook it down slowly the the goal of that is that actually infuses a lot of flavor into broths and so we kind of make a broth using sofrito Um, clam juice can be the base and then lightly steaming topping that off to finish and then finishing it with fresh herbs once the fish has been cooked all the way through, I think is a really super flavorful way to cook things and to take kind of a healthier take on on fish and frying fish.
0: Oh, that sounds so good. That is this edition of Coastline. Dean Neff of Seabird Restaurant. Thank you so much for Thanks being for with us.
3: Me. Thank you.
0: Thanks also to Duke University's Kiara Klein and Oakland University's Dr. Raja Rajaei. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.